So last week, I told a story from the Christian scriptures. This week, I tell one from the Jewish scriptures. It's a story of a young girl, probably in her late teens, who changed her world. The story starts like this. One day, the king boots his old wife in favor of a new one. What else can I do, he says. She won't jump when I tell her to. (laughs) So all of his cronies agree, so she gets the boot, and they scour the land looking for a replacement, and they find Esther, who is young and beautiful and kind, and they pluck her out of the lineup, and pow, she is now the king's new wife. Now, we're not very far into the story yet, and you can already tell that these players are not of particularly high moral fiber. Uh, They're not looking to better the earth, as we talked about last week. They're not agents of the divine life on the earth. No, this is a story set in a shark pool, a pool that Esther has been pushed into. She's a good girl. She's been raised in the divine way raised in grace and goodness, knowing right and wrong, truth and beauty, and she's swimming in a pool of sharks. Now, because she's young and sweet and kind, the sharks don't perceive her as a threat. Uh, They pretty much leave her alone. She's a sweet kid. She makes the king happy, so that's fine, 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 because they're busy scheming for advancement. Nobody gives her much more thought than that because they're trying to get ahead, accumulating power, accumulating favor, trying to accumulate a next notch up in the in-group, and she really doesn't have anything that they want. So let's leave Esther there swimming with the sharks for a moment and recap the story that we told last week because the two stories bear upon one another. Last week, Jesus sent his followers on a job. It's a job that's been given to every follower since. It's a job of inverting the world order, making wrong right. It's a job that we take on at a personal level, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. And it's a job that we do collectively together, organizing uh, to do what no one of us can do alone. In personal ways, in collective ways, The job is to upend the world where the weak have become accustomed to being slapped down. In personal ways and collective ways, it is the job of upending the world in which the irritating people get rejected and the wounded people get ignored or avoided. It's a job of actualizing a bigger reality that Jesus perceived so clearly a reality in which love overcomes weakness and evil is overcome by good, a world, a reality in which vulnerability is met with grace and with mercy, a world in which the leprous encounter the divine and are transformed. Jesus gave us a job to be agents of a new order and to draw from the indwelling Holy Spirit in order to have the capacity to do the job, the job of setting people free with truth, making right, not with might, but with love, defining greatness, not in terms of personal achievement, but in terms of service to the greater good. Jesus gave us a job to invert the world order, 
and to undermine wrong with right. So I was in a meeting this week of a bunch of religious leaders from all over the triangle. And I saw a vision of what can happen. I'm even going to suggest what is going to happen when all of us, all together, take up our part of this job. I saw how market forces are doing a really good job of organizing to take care of market forces. And I saw how governmental forces are doing a really good job organizing to take care of governmental forces. But I also saw how families are not organized as well and are not being protected and guarded and how families across the triangle really are suffering and how religious institutions by each of us taking up our part of the mission can work together for the well-being of the families in our cities. Together, we can fulfill the job that was given us by Jesus. It's a demanding job, but countless generations before us have found that when we tap into the indwelling Spirit of God that each of us carries, and when we work together as spiritual people, it's a very doable, demanding job. Together, we're able to point one another toward the divine life that each of us carries, And together we become a formidable force for life and for light in our world. Together we can help one another see beyond our perceived smallness. Together we can help one another see beyond our personal sense of flawedness, our personal guilt, our personal sense of inadequacy. Most of us are painfully aware of our shortcomings. Most of us are painfully aware of our limitations. We can't hide from the stuff that we would like to hide from everybody else. And we've got a song that plays in our head. It's different for each one of us, but it plays over and over and over again. Something about being a bad mother or something about being a bad boss or being a bad employee or something about being a bad Christian or some bad student or being lazy or being bad at relationships. There's some song that goes over and over and over. You fill in the blank for your song. And so, upending the world, yeah, I'd love to be involved in that, but I'm not really a candidate for that kind of thing. I need my own healing. I need my own wellness. I need my own strengthening. I'm not really a salt, light kind of person, the kind of person we talked about last week. And we looked last week at how that's a really important theme that we need to address as we are moving forward, because how we think about ourselves profoundly affects the role that we are willing to play or that we see to play. And most of us don't think of ourselves in the category of changing the world. But as we've stressed in so many lessons before, it's a job given to us, but it's a job given to all of us. It's an all of us together kind of job. We aren't responsible to repair the earth single-handedly. We're simply responsible to find the indwelling spirit that is within us, to listen carefully and obey tenaciously. We're simply required to dance the two-step dance, to to desire an ever-deepening experience of the divine, an ever-deepening awakening to divine resource, and then pay attention. Listen for the interior whispers. Go to the places that the whispers send us. Do that, 
And sure enough, we find our place alongside one another. Do that, and sure enough, we find the resources we need inside of ourselves and inside one another. And we discover our flawedness is not really a disqualifying factor. We find that the central message of our whole religion is grace. The central message of our whole religion is forgiveness. The whole thing is about that not being the disqualifying factor. That's a little recap of what we talked about last week. So back to the story of Esther. Esther embodied smallness. Esther embodied weakness. Remember, she's probably only 16 years old. She's just a squirt. She's immersed in what we would call the real world, power players playing power games. And they're accumulating wealth. They're accumulating wealth. They're accumulating dominance. They're accumulating prestige. They're accumulating status. And she's really just a bit player off to the side. She had to feel what we would feel. This can't be my job. Somebody should do something. Can't be me. Couldn't be me. Because she's the wrong age. She's young in a world full of grown-ups. She's the wrong gender. She's female in a male-dominated world. She's the wrong race. She's Jewish, and the game is Babylonian. She's got the wrong personality. She's sweet, and her world is Machiavellian. She didn't have enough experience. She didn't have enough wisdom. She didn't have enough influence. She didn't have enough of a power base. And yet she finds herself in a national crisis, not unlike we do in our own time. One Babylonian official got into a tussle with Esther's Jewish uncle, and their fuss became a threat to the whole Jewish nation. His name's Haman, this Babylonian official, and he decides that he's going to settle the Jewish problem once and for all, and he hatches a plan for genocide. And he hatches a public smear campaign to bring about fear and to bring about recrimination. And he makes a plan that's going to kill all Jews because he can't control one. And there, while all this drama is going on, is Esther in the back row. No experience, not a lot of a power base in way over her head. But her uncle knows something about this divine way and how it works. Paul said it this way last week. God didn't give this world-changing job to us because we were dominant or because we were influential or because we were peddlers in the currency of world power. No, the divine life doesn't really work that way. It doesn't go to those who are particularly full of themselves. They're the people who people think have power, but usually it's more often than not, the bit player in the back row who actually brings about true influence. In this divine way, again and again, it's the grassroot cog who makes the difference. The people the world calls weak, the people society calls lowly, the people who are working outside the accepted power structure. That's the way these spiritual things work. It's a counterintuitive strategy. It's a salt thing. Small, but just a little bit, flavors the whole pot. It's a candle thing. Small, but light it, and the room's no longer dark. 
So here's Mordecai, Esther's uncle, pulls her aside, and he teaches her some ancient truth. He says something like this, Sweetie, you are a punk. It's true. You're too small to be doing this thing. But that's often how these things go. It's the punks who awaken to the interior divine, and it's the punks who become agents of change. And that's the wisdom that Mordecai taught Esther. It's the ancient truth that's available to us. That's the way this world works, Mordecai taught Esther. And it's true for Esther. And it's true for us. You live somewhere. You work somewhere. And the place that you live and the place that you work, it has its own version of darkness going on. It has its own fear. It has its own kind of destruction going on. It has its own rejection going on. And you too, like Esther, are there, strategically positioned, and probably not the dominating force. And that strategic positioning is part of the job that Jesus gave us. Eyes wide open to our failures. Eyes wide open to our shortcomings. You've got them, sure you do. But what we often forget when we focus on our failures and shortcomings is that we are also carriers of divine light. That's the very thing that animates us, the breath of God, our earliest story tells us. So we can all imagine how Esther felt because it's how we would feel. Not candidates for this divine job. Big shots do important stuff like that. I've got a job. I've got a family. I've got all the things that I've got to do. I'm a student. That's about all I can really handle. Somebody more significant should do this. Somebody on TV should do this. Somebody, not me. But again, the ancient story is that people just like us unfold divine purpose. People just like us, steadfastly present there, consistently day in and day out. People like us show up. People like us listen carefully and obey tenaciously. People like us show up and dance the two-step dance. Well, that's the wisdom that Mordecai taught Esther. But Esther, she knew some wisdom of her own as well. She had an understanding of two other dynamics that inform the divine way. She understood quietness and she understood togetherness. Quietness and togetherness. When there was a threat to herself and to her people, she got quiet. And she got her whole community to get quiet with her. They made space together for the interior voice. They got the whole community get together to listen together. For three days, they went without food. That'll help you get quiet. They didn't use the tools that the sharks used. They got quiet, and they got together. And together, they listened for divine wisdom. And who knows who heard the wisdom first? Maybe it was Esther. Maybe it was one of her Jewish friends in court. Maybe it was her uncle or some of the network of people that her uncle knew. But when Esther called them to quiet, they got quiet. And when they made space, they found what they were looking for. They asked, and it was given to them. They sought, and they found. They knocked, and the door was opened to them. From a deep place within, there emerged both a plan and the courage to execute the plan. 
If you don't know how the story ends, I would encourage you to read it. Maybe later today, it ends well. Esther used the assets that the sharks had dismissed in a compelling expression of the fruit of the Spirit. She executed a plan that drew from the deep reservoir of love and kindness and goodness and peace and self-control. And she leveraged this alternative form of power to win the salvation of her nation. It's a story worth reading. So for years, I have repeated with recurring regularity two axioms. One of them is this. The central organizing principle of life in God is the fullness of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the second is this. We find God better together than we do alone. God's Spirit indwells each of us. If we center ourselves, if we quiet our souls, if we get past the layers of ego consciousness, we discern the overflowing, the overflowing presence of the indwelling Spirit. And when we do, there is a wisdom within us that transcends normal limits. When we do, there is resource within us that transcends normal expectations. When we do, there is compassion within us that stretches beyond the normal limitations. And it is just as true that we access that interior resource, we tap those inner possibilities better together than we do alone. There's something about being on this journey together, engaged in the seeking and the finding together, taking up the heal the earth job together, that also taps into a divine dynamic. The divine is accessible to us together in a way that it isn't accessible to us alone. Esther had an indwelling resource. She had the indwelling spirit. And Esther was not alone. She had together. We have the same indwelling resource. We have the same indwelling divine. And we also are not alone. We also have together. Our nation is having its own ruckus right now. I've mentioned several times that I think an important byproduct of this current social upheaval is that we, the followers of Jesus, have had thrust into our awareness that that could fly under the layer, under the level of conscious awareness before. We have seen a degree of hurt that we might, could have ignored, but can no longer. We've seen a degree of suffering and injustice and iniquity that if we are going to be serious about following Jesus, we cannot allow to stand. There is now being put upon us a responsibility to act and to respond to be repairers of the earth. We can no longer, because awareness has been thrust upon us, avoid or dis, make, make disimportant the job that Jesus has given us. But that being said, this past election has the potential to undercut our ability to do anything about this newfound awareness. Because these several months later, now that the fever pitch has toned down somewhat, Deep rifts still divide people. 
People who once spoke with ease now carry strain among themselves. People who once lived the together dynamic, seeking God better together than alone, are now not as together as they once were. And that poses a threat to the whole dynamic. We can't really take up the Jesus job as effectively unless we're together. And we won't really see what Esther's generation saw unless we're together. This is why our community focuses so heavily on self-awareness and self-disclosure, because without them, we cannot resolve our conflicts. And conflicts are inevitable when oneness is not synonymous with sameness. You've heard me say that many times. This is why we're training for talking circles, to make sure that we can be together in a way that everyone is heard and everyone is respected. Because absent this together dynamic, absent tapping into the interior divine dynamic and doing it together, we really have nothing to offer to this historical moment that anyone else has to offer. These are the gifts that we have. These are the gifts that our tradition has given us. Without them, we cut ourselves off from anything that we have to offer. Every generation that follows Jesus, every generation that listens to the interior voice, eventually hears the job assignment that Jesus gave us again last week. Make right what's wrong on the earth. Fix what's broken on the earth. And every generation that follows this path eventually faces the kind of threat that Esther's generation faced, the kind of threat that we face. We're going to go forward on this journey, but the question for us is do we go forward together or do we break into our more comfortable segments? You've heard me say several times, we won't be in the together dynamic without the wild-eyed conservatives. And we won't be in the, in the together dynamic without the wild-eyed liberals. We've seen it again and again. Each of us has a fractal of the bigger picture, making it necessary for us to be together. I've been a little grouchy lately. Um, and when I say grouchy, I'm kind of le- letting myself off the hook. <laughs> I've been kind of an ass. <laughs> That might be a better way of saying it. I think the church council is a little bit worried about me. Uh, When we were having our meeting with Jack, our consultant, I told him to shut up. (laughs) And I may have peppered my remarks with some salty language. Several possible reasons have been suggested for my funk. Uh, Fatigue, my brother's ongoing illness, our community trauma a year ago. Uh, I was reminded of Kubler-Ross's stages of grief and how they affect us not only when we experience death, but also when we experience things like we went through a year ago. And sure enough, they count up the months, oh, between 12 and 18 months. Yep, you ought to be in a phone, Doug. So that's what could be true, <clears throat> but that's not what it feels like inside me. Here's why I think I'm in a funk. I think how Christians are responding to this national moment is uh, (laughs) pissing me off, all right? (laughs) The last time I was in this kind of funk was late 2007 and early 2008. It was a time of pretty uh, serious transition for our community. 
If you've been to the Newcomer Lunch, Michelle will tell you the story of that. If you haven't been, it would be worth coming for the free pizza and for the story. But at the time I was going through that, I was carrying the weight of that transition pretty heavily in my heart. And I believe we're in another transition moment in our community, just as we are as a nation. How we respond to this national moment is going to define us as a community. And I'm carrying the weight of that moment pretty heavily in my heart, this transition pretty heavily in my heart. Now, in the months ahead, I will report to you everything that Jack helps us discover about uh, where we're going in the future, and we will talk about that, and I'll tell you everything I know. But whatever I say, we won't go there effectively if we don't learn to deal better with the forces that divide us. In my non-grumpy moments, I realize how difficult this transition moment is. I really do. In my non-grumpy moments, I have all kinds of patience because what we're talking about, oneness that is not sameness, that just isn't done. And so it's difficult to even see what togetherness means when oneness isn't sameness. And if you can't see it, how in the world are you supposed to do it? And so really, I do have a lot of patience for this thing. In my non-carrying the weight of this transition moments, all kinds of grace and patience. But when I'm grumpy, it's because I have felt the hurt and react accordingly. And it's not always pretty. I'm doing the first round of talking circle training with the groups that are going to be leading circles for our church. And at the training meeting, the question was asked in the circle, in this post-election tumult, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? And I heard a lot of really interesting things. It was fun. But I said, I'd like to have the storytelling superpower. And by storytelling superpower, this is what I mean is this. The power to insert into someone's head somebody else's story. To insert into someone's head the story of the person that they're afraid of. Or the story of the person that they're angry at. Or the story of the person that they're fighting so damn hard to defend themselves against. Because I've gotten grumpy lately with people who aren't hearing and they're not engaging the stories of those people that they need, the people that they need to be with, and the people that they need to work with, and the people that they need to discern with and plan with and collaborate with, the people who are different from them, people that they need if we're going to take up this job that Jesus has given us, if we're going to be the cogs that make a difference. We can't do this thing if we don't do this together. And we're not doing a very good job of being together. The transformative presence of the world in the world around us is our gift to offer. But the resource that we have is the ability to do this thing unified together, sharing the same life and the same spirit together. Esther was just a little girl, but she knew the spiritual journey well enough to know that we need to quiet ourselves and we need to discern wisdom that's greater than the limits that we usually carry. And she was just a little girl, but she knew the spiritual journey well enough to know that we need to be in this thing together, all of us together. So at this meeting I went to, I heard a story of some of the families in Wake County. 
And I walked away just a little bit discouraged. These families live in an area that was previously the dumping ground for Raleigh's trash. And after that trash had pretty much filled up the wetlands, then they said, okay, black folk can go live there now. And so they do. But now with the wetlands gone, every time there is a storm like we had last time, these areas flood. So now we're talking about environmental protection, and we're talking about race, and we're talking about poverty, and we're talking about history, and we're talking about how we got here. And we don't know how to talk about that stuff. I thought, we can't bring that up. Here are these people whose homes are flooding every time there's a big flood, and we can't go talk about that because that's environmentalism, and that's some kind of a political issue. And so if we can't do this together, then we can't do this. And so the story of Esther and the story of Jesus compels us to learn how to talk together, to learn how to solve problems together, to learn how to get past what's being imported from the world around us that's saying, these are the fights you've got to fight, and to come and find the way of the Spirit, the way of the life, to do better than that. And that's my prayer for us, that this essential center of any future that we would have together as a community, really as a church, as a nation, that we would experience that essential center. So Lord, may it be so among us. In Jesus' name, amen.